Let us pray. So, Father, even now we ask that you would draw us to yourself. And, Lord, through this season of Lent and even an upcoming Holy Week, we would go much more deeply into the mysteries of what Christ has done on our behalf. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. You may be seated. Good to see everyone this morning and good to be back. Thank you to Father Jed and the staff for covering for me for a week prior when I was um, away on my silent retreat. And it was a wonderful time, but it's good to be back with all of you as well. And I will say, when I got back Monday, I hit the ground running. So, um, yes, but so good to see all of you. I invite you to take out your Bibles or devices and turn to Luke chapter 20. Today, as we've already said, is the fifth Sunday in Lent, and it's hard to believe that next Sunday already is Palm Sunday and the start of Holy Week. And on that note, I want to encourage all of you to make Holy Week services a priority. This is the most important week on the church calendar, and it's so important for us as much as our schedules allow to, it's important for us to set aside time to really walk through and reflect upon the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us. We will have a variety of services, but we'll have a Eucharist at least once every day, except for Good Friday that week, and we'll have a Good Friday service. Um, so I'd encourage you, it's on the church calendar, I'll have a little bit more to say about that when we get to announcements, but please look at your calendars and um, make those services a priority. Well, once again today, we are looking primarily at our gospel reading from St. Luke's Gospel, as we've done each Sunday in Lent. And today, as last Sunday, the gospel reading is a parable. Today's parable is commonly known as the parable of the wicked tenants. As we look at parables, one of the important principles or guidelines to keep in mind regarding how to understand parables, and it's especially important for today's parable, is that the main or key points of the parable are what matters. A parable is not an allegory where every single word and subtlety of image has spiritual significance. The parable for today is set with Jesus teaching this parable in the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 1 affirms this. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple. So clearly the setting is established. And during this late period in Jesus' ministry, this is the week of his passion, he has finally arrived in Jerusalem. If you remember two weeks ago in chapter 13, we talked about the idea that Jesus was still at that time doing ministry in Galilee, but that he was fixed on moving toward Jerusalem, not on some human timing, but the timing appointed by God. In Jerusalem, the very week of his passion, again, where this parable is set, we read this. And he was teaching, this is Luke 19, 47 through 48. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. So during that week um, of his passion, we find Jesus teaching every day, daily in the temple. Now, this parable that we are looking at today is addressed to the people, Verse 1 tells us that, but most specifically, it is addressed to the religious leaders in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. And this parable is an indictment against them. 
It's against their rejection of God's prophets, their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, and their rejection of God's incredible long-suffering grace and patience with them and with all of Old Testament Israel. And while this parable in so many ways in its immediate context is specific to them, there are clear principles here which apply to people in every generation, including you and including me. So our focus today as we look and go through this parable is to extract some of those principles and make application to our lives. This parable always brings a chuckle to me um, when I read it because back some 22 years ago when Tammy and I were on our honeymoon, we went to England and um, one of the things we did was we visited a number of cathedrals. Now, we probably, by my choice, visited more than Tammy would have visited. Um, she loves going to cathedrals, but we went to the cathedral in every city we went to. Um, one of my hobbies, I know, is to visit anytime I'm in a city, whether it's in the U.S. or abroad, to try to visit the cathedral, um, whether that be Anglican or Catholic. But there was one day we took an excursion to both the Cambridge and Ely areas in England, and we went to a Carl Evensong at Ely Cathedral. Now, Ely Cathedral is a just a spectacular, incredible cathedral. Um, I have a picture of it that Tammy took on the wall of my office, if you've been in there, um, that she took on her honeymoon. But what makes me chuckle, we went to this Carl Evensong, there was this very, very old priest who got up and read the gospel reading for that evening, which was this, this parable. And this is not an exact, I am not exaggerating. I even rehearsed it with Tammy this night and said, I'm not stretching this out longer, right? So he began by saying, now a certain man planted a vineyard <laughs> and drug vineyard out for about five syllables. And I'm looking at Peter, I'm looking at Margaret with their British background. I'm guessing they can appreciate some of this. But yes, a certain man planted a vineyard just like that. And so every time I read this parable, that memory comes back to me because it was, it was a solemn even song. It was all that we could do. And we weren't the only ones to not burst out laughing in the middle of this beautiful church with an even song and a choir of men and boys and, you know, the whole works. Um, but yeah, so that's what comes to mind at first when I read this, this parable at any given time. But at its core, this parable is about the breath and patience of God, and it's about the heart of God's grace. It's also a picture of absurdity on the part of some people. And all of this is presented through everyday imagery which people could understand from their context and from their lives. And that's the thing about God's grace and God's mercy, how God communicates to us as human beings. It is grace. God presents things in a way that we can grab hold of them. If we look at the teachings of Jesus, if we look at the teachings of his parables, we look at the writings of St. Paul, we look at all of Scripture, God always presents things in a way that we can understand and relate to from real examples from everyday life. And that is nothing less than the grace of God. Just like the idea of Scripture, God communicating to us in human language is a gracious act and accommodation on God's part because the reality is everyday human life, human language, cannot fully convey or capture the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God. But God, out of his desire for us to be in relationship with him, presents these eternal truths that are beyond fully human, full human comprehension in a way that we can grasp and understand.
tenant farmers, speaking of this example, and landowners who lived far off were a common occurrence. So this is something that the people Jesus was speaking to could relate to. And tenants attempting to seize or abscond with land they were farming was also not that unusual when the landlord lived far away. So we'll begin by looking at the servants. It's in verses 9 through 12, we read how over time the owner sends three separate servants to the estate to see what fruit and therefore what profits are being produced. Fruit was expected. This was the tenant's primary responsibility to cultivate the land so that it would produce fruit in abundance. And tragically, there was no fruit. Even worse, look what the tenants did to each of the three servants. Verse 10, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 11 with the second servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And verse 12, the third servant, this one also they wounded and cast out. Now, in the immediate context at that time, these servants point to and represent the Old Testament prophets, Israel's prophets, who time and time again were mistreated, persecuted, and even killed by Old Testament Israel. Prophets were sent by God to call God's people back to him, back to him by being true to him, being truly the center and the source of life for both them personally and as a united people. The message here is also about bearing fruit. It relates very much to this recurring theme that we've seen throughout these gospel readings in Luke during Lent, that godly lives bear fruit, fidelity to God, faithfulness to him and to the heart of his commands will lead to spiritual fruit in your life and in mine. Just like returning to God would lead to the same thing for Old Testament Israel. And faithfulness to God, fidelity to God, grows from a living relationship. Not from biological birthright, or social status, or education, or any other temporal thing. Joel Green in his commentary on this passage says this, Obedience to God is the outworking of faithful dispositions, and this, not one's birthright, nor religious training, nor relation to the administration of the temple affairs, qualifies one as a member of the people of God. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, we read this, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This, brothers and sisters, is incredibly wonderful news for you and me and for every single person who's ever lived. It reminds us, in the words of a saying that's kind of become a cliche at this point, but is very true, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We come to Christ, we come to living relationship with God, not because 
of our parents or family status or background, good or bad. You could be from a wonderful Christian family, and yet you still need to come to Christ in faith. You could be from a horrible background, a sordid background, a background maybe that you're even embarrassed to talk about. And yet Christ invites you in the same way and on the same terms. It's not based on our education or learning. It's not based on social status, high or low, or wealth or career. God's grace, God's grace has appeared to all and extends to all who turn to him equally. God is no respecter of persons. As 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us, and I read this several weeks ago, but I want to read it again. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The other thing we see here is that the leaders had lost their bearings. And the reality is that this was the result of their own actions. They had themselves to blame for this. They had lost touch with God. They had lost touch with what it means to walk in living relationship with God. They had lost sight of God's truth, the very truth for which they claimed to be the primary spokespersons. The truth to which they were supposed to be the experts. Oh, they knew the law and the prophets. And yet they missed it. But this is also a picture, even in this parable, it's also an incredible picture of the patience and long-suffering of God. And what we see here and throughout Scripture is really contra to any idea or the misperception that's often, far too often we, heard, we hear said, that somehow there's this dichotomy in God, that somehow the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy, as if they were two different characters or personalities of God. That is a lie. That is so far from the truth. God does not change. When you look at God's dealings with Old Testament Israel, remembering that the Old Testament encompasses thousands of years and the New Testament encompasses less than a century. When you look at God's dealings with Old Testament Israel, when you look at the prophets that he sent time and time and time again, when you look at the wording of the Psalms, God is loving and gracious and patient and long-suffering and covenant-keeping. But his people continued as a whole to stiff arm him. Malachi chapter 3 reminds us, For I, the Lord God, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Israel, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Again, a picture. God saying, Return to me. Relationship is still possible. Walking in righteousness and fidelity is still possible. So we've seen the response to the servants. So let's look at the only son. Because God's gracious, merciful, outstretched hand did not stop with the prophets. Look at verses 13 through 15 with me. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? 
I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Verse 13, the owner figuratively engages in a soliloquy. Now, to define a soliloquy, um, I'll refer to Andy Griffith. You know, I, some of you know I, I love the Andy Griffith show. Um, Tammy says she's going to have that theme played at my funeral because she hears it almost every day. Um, yes, but there is an episode in season two called A Feud is a Feud, and at one st- Part, in one part of that episode, Andy is quoting Shakespeare, uh, Romeo and Juliet, specifically to Opie, and talks about Romeo going into a soliloquy. And Opie says, Paul, what's a soliloquy? And Andy looks at him and says, son of soliloquies, and you go far off in the corner and you talk to yourself. <laughs> and that's pretty much what it is. There's this dialogue with oneself. And the soliloquy here gives us insight in verse 13 into the heart of the father, into the heart of the landowner, into the heart of God. And it's also a good example of what I said about parables at the beginning and that we're not to take every detail and run with it because if you took this to its logical end apart from the whole council of scripture, there might be some question in our head of whether or not God was ever going to send his son or whether that was eternally planned or not. And the reality is God's eternal plan has, had always been to send his son to give his life for the redemption of the world. That fact was never in question. But tragically, even when standing in the presence of deity, in the presence of the eternal son of God, these leaders to whom Jesus was speaking missed it. The very people who were supposed to be the ultimate experts in the law and the prophets all of which pointed to this person, pointed to Jesus, they missed. They missed it despite the events at Jesus' baptism. In Luke 3, where we read, Now when all the people were baptized, and when when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. They missed all of this. And this parable paints a picture of total and incredibly tragic rejection. Rejection of God, rejection of his truth, and rejection of his incredible grace, patience, and kindness extended and offered to them. God, brothers and sisters, is incredibly tenacious. So what was the core issue here with the tenants, with the teachers of the law? Well, I think it can be boiled down to two things. First, pride. Pride. And the second thing is a desire, a false desire, or faulty desire, I should say, for personal autonomy, to be able to control everything oneself. And there was a refusal or an unwillingness on their part to think beyond their immediate context. 
All they saw was right now and what they wanted and what they wanted to accomplish. Falsely presuming that they are the ultimate authority and if somehow they were in complete control of things. They think they can even control the owner of the vineyard. They have sorely and tragically miscalculated. You see, the son in the parable, Jesus the son with these teachers of the law, threatened their false sense of autonomy. He threatened their misperception that they controlled the vineyard, that they had everything in control in their hands. They were in charge. And because they are caught up in the moment and in themselves and full of pride, they think that they can even control the owner. They think that they can even control God by what they do to the son. They think that by killing the son, they can cheat and steal what belongs to the owner. They think that by killing Jesus, the eternal son of God, they can somehow rob God of what was his through the son as heir. And their false perceptions are incredibly temporary and incredibly fleeting. Because true permanence, lasting foundation, comes by yielding and aligning oneself with the son and by aligning oneself with the son with God Almighty himself. Allegiance and alliance with the one who is eternal, the one who offers life, the one who offers redemption. You can't cheat God. Not just them. We can't cheat God. We really don't control things in the way we think we do anyway. And if we think we do, it's the blindness and the foolishness of pride that causes us to think that. Things aren't all that different in our day. They're really not different at all. Maybe a different context. Think about it. Pride. Personal autonomy. A desire to control everything ourselves. And people, even some of us, cling to those things as if that works. When in reality, life And a permanent and lasting foundation comes not through holding on and clinging to and trying to control, but through surrender. Surrender to the Son. Because the reality is no matter how much we try, we can't control life. Yeah, we can make good and bad choices, but we can't control life. We can't fix things on our own. True transformation, fruit, regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of our social status, regardless of what is in your past, comes by throwing ourselves open to God's grace and loving kindness and mercy and love for us, shown in the sacrifice of his son. And instead of trying to take things or keep things in our hands and in our control, God's heart, as we tether ourselves to the one who is true and the lasting foundation, 
is that we throw our arms open wide and invite God into our brokenness. Invite God into our pain. Invite God into our struggles with sin. Invite God into our mess. And then open ourselves to his good and gracious and healing and transforming work in our lives. Because the stone the builders rejected has indeed become the cornerstone. The only one on which anything of lasting and eternal value, either in the immediate or for all of eternity, can be built. God calls us to that. God invites us to that. Did you know God's not scared of your stuff and your junk? He already knows about it. And he says, open your life to me. Invite me in. Let me do my healing and delivering and transforming work. This is really what Holy Week, as we approach it, is all about. The lengths to which God has gone to make living relationship with him, to make fruitful, godly lives possible, to make eternal relationship possible. That's what we look at in Holy Week. So again, I would encourage you to participate in these services absolutely as much as your schedule allows. Adjust your schedule because we need to walk with Jesus from the triumphal entry to the upper room and the garden to the cross before we get to the resurrection because it shows us, it will cause us to reflect profoundly on just how much God loves us and how great his long suffering and patience is with us and what he has done so that we could be transformed and walk in relationship with him. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your incredible grace and love, for your mercy, for your long-suffering. And Lord, thank you that truly the ground is level at the foot of the cross, even as we pray every Sunday. And from you, Lord, no secrets are hid. So Lord, may we look to you. May we throw our arms open to you. And Lord, afresh or for the first time, whatever it may be, invite you into our lives, into our stuff, into our mess, that you, O Lord, would do your good, gracious, healing, delivering work. And Lord, that we as the redeemed and transformed people of God would live lives of ever greater greater fruitfulness for your kingdom and true fidelity to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.